The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. It's a joy to be back with you again. We are walking through how to understand and apply the Old Testament, 12 Steps from Exegesis to Theology. So when I wrote the book, I had an introduction and then 12 chapters, walking one for each step. And that's what we're doing. We're giving 13 weeks to walking through this book, one week per chapter. And today, we are in part two on chapter six. So we move from text observation, context, meaning, application. And we are still in the observation stage trying to understand how is the passage communicated. Last time we looked at grammar, and today we're going to look at argument tracing. So the Bible doesn't just give us a series of propositions. It relates those propositions one to another through various relationships, action, manner, action, purpose, progression, if, then, conditionals, all different kinds of relationships. And because that's how God's communicating to us, we need to understand how to track His logic. How He gives us the argument. And we think about arguments significantly in letters like Paul has given us or in sermons like Moses has given us. But even stories can be understood under a broad category of argument and we just need to understand how they're all packaged together. Today, though, I want to focus in on sermon material. Old Testament sermon material considering how to track an argument. So, we already began this step last time when we began to assess structure. And we began to see that there's hierarchy, certain clauses that are more primary, other clauses that we would indent because they're supportive in some way, restating in some way, So our goal here is to finish tracing out the argument and then to create a message-driven outline that's tied to the passage's main point. So that means we've got to grasp the main point of the passage and we have to understand how all the parts of that passage contribute to that main point. And the first time I tasted this idea of argument tracing was in college. I had a professor at Taylor University, his name was Ted Dorman, and he was part of what was called at that time the Fellowship of the Ark. (laughs) It kind of sounds, you know, Indiana Jones-ish, but uh, John Piper was part of that fellowship as well. Because both Ted and Pastor John had had the same professor in seminary, his name was Daniel Fuller, who had, in the 1950s, shaped a hermeneutics curriculum, that is a how-to-study-the-Bible curriculum, that was grounded in understanding the relationships of clauses so as to track arguments. Now, back at that day, I was using it in the English Bible, and I studied the Sermon on the Mount. And for the first time, I was learning how to track Jesus' flow of thought. Then I went on to seminary, and I found out, wow, they, they do this wrestling with the relationship of clauses as well, arcing. And now I was doing it with the Greek text. And at the same time, I'm learning Hebrew and finding out that in Hebrew, almost every clause begins with and, at least with the conjunction that is often translated and, rather than the host of subordinate conjunctions, the becauses and the so that's and the in order that's and with the result that and the when's 
and the therefores, rather than using all those subordinate conjunctions in biblical Hebrew, most clauses just have vav, vav, vav. And so you're hearing as an oral listener, as an, um, an oral receptor, you're just hearing the word of God being read, and clause after clause after clause, you're hearing v, 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 in front of every single clause. And all of a sudden, you come to one, and it's not there. Now, along with that, most of the clauses in Hebrew begin with verbs. So, it would be, and went Jason, and said, and did, and jumped, and ran. Now... He was the father of Isaac. As soon as you come to a clause that doesn't begin with and, you'd feel it. You'd you'd hear it. And I went on to do my doctoral studies. I did my coursework and finished my comprehensive exams. It was time to say, what am I going to write my dissertation on? I took nine months writing a dissertation. I thought I was supposed to write, and I got to Christmas and realized, I can't put any of this together. Nine months of my life, full time, and I told my wife, I'm going to change my dissertation topic. And what I changed it to was, how do I track Moses' flow of thought in Deuteronomy when every clause begins with and? I wanted to see what I had seen work in English, what I had seen work in Greek, how does it work in Hebrew? And so off I went and wrote my first book. That's what a dissertation is. And so I used the biblical text to understand grammar, all the while being driven by my last chapter, which is all that motivated me when I would get to use the grammar to understand the text. So the final chapter of my dissertation was an argument-tracing commentary on Deuteronomy 5 through 11, where I actually worked out all the principles that I had discovered. And, but what I'm about to show you today is old, meaning that it was, it was created in the, outside the Bible and then brought into biblical studies in, in the 1950s, this process of argument tracing. And it might seem quite natural, like, oh, of course, that's how arguments are made. But the idea of representing it graphically is something that Daniel Fuller brought into New Testament studies. And then Robert Longacre, who was uh, probably Chris knows about him. He's been working with Wycliffe for years. He brought it into Old Testament studies All of it stemmed from this godly man, Daniel Fuller, working in Pasadena, California. And now it's had an impact globally on how we think about texts, how we think about interpreting Scripture. So it's called arcing only because we draw these fancy arcs and then try to... And an arc goes over each proposition in a text, and then we use little symbols to represent, is this the action and this the manner, or is this the action and this the result? Are these clauses in series, or is there a progression? So we're going to walk through and consider consider argument tracing. And so I said two steps, create a diagram of the flow of thought, and then capture that flow of thought in a message-driven outline. So, to that end, let's just ask God for help. Lord, I thank you that once again we can be together looking into how to study your Bible. We want to learn to, at times, be slower readers who are able to think and mull and wrestle with small connecting words in order to understand foundation and fulfillment, basis and inference, action and purpose. 
in order that we can best understand the point that you're making in your word. So help me today as I unpack a number of categories. I pray that it wouldn't intimidate, but rather motivate. For the sake of your name and for the joy of encountering you for these people. Through Jesus I pray, amen. All right, so key tool that I use, and it's now being used all over the world. It's owned by Bethlehem College and Seminary, overseen by one of our former students who's a global partner with Bethlehem in the Middle East. And this dear brother has created a, a, great, a great tool called I mean, BibleArc.com. So I encourage you, go check it out. You can use it for free. If you want to save your ARCs, and share them with others, then you get, for small pennies per month, the value is amazing. You can secure an account with BibleArc.com. So what we want to do, right off the bat, this is um, first step in in analyzing an argument is break it down into propositions. Now, last class we considered the breaking down of the, of the biblical text into clauses. And that's the starting, starting place for understanding all relationships. But some people choose to even go deeper and not just be bound by clauses, but even get down into the adverbial phrases. And we'll consider this a little bit. So a clause, a grammatical construction made up of a subject and its predicate, with a possible coordinating or subordinating conjunction and various modifiers. We looked at that last time we were together. An adverbial phrase, remember an adverb is a word or group of words that modify a verb. So he sang loudly. Loudly is an adverb. He sang while tapping his toes. While tapping his toes is an adverbial clause, not just an adverb word, but an adverb clause. While tapping his toes. Or you could call it a phrase. I think in Hebrew and how it's all attached. But it's it's an adverb. It's, It's modifying something. And when we identify that adverbial relationship telling me how something happens why something happens, that's something that we're going to represent in our argument diagram. So once we break it down into propositions, then we want to wrestle with the relationship of those propositions. It's called semantic relationship. As we're assessing, semantics is is just the, the content, the meaning on the surface, and we're wrestling with the relationship of the parts to the whole. So there's two different kinds of relationships. There's coordinate relationships, those that stand side by side. One is not necessarily at a higher level of thought than the other, though they may be in series, meaning that you could reverse the two. It doesn't matter what order they're in. Or they may be in progression in that He went to the store, and then he went to the movies. And and to get the story right, you can't reverse it. He had to have his jujubes before he arrived at the theater. It wouldn't work the other way around. And so there's progression in the story, in the argument. Or there could be alternative options. He did this or this. He can't do both. He came to a Y in the road, and and it was either this or this, and the story is telling us that. Both options are at the same level of argument, but it's two different possibilities. Or something wherein both elements are true, both elements are false. The other type of relationship is a subordinate relationship. That is that what follows in some way provides restatement or distinct statement or contrary statement to what was just declared. 
So what we're going to do, you've got a chart in front of you. It looks like potentially high-level complication. And I just want to walk through, and I don't think you're going to see anything you've never heard of before. All these relationships between clauses, it's just the way that we talk. It's, it's how communication works. And all we're doing in applying it to biblical studies is slowing down enough to actually ask the question, why did he say it that way, and what exactly is he communicating? So, coordinate relationships. Let's just walk through and assess what we're talking about, and hopefully everybody can see what's up there. So, a coordinate relationship, these, these two elements that are side by side, one is not necessarily bearing more weight than the other. And what we see first is elements in series. Now, to be in series means you just have a list of things, and it really doesn't even matter what order they're in. You could swap the order around. They're just a list, all at the same level, in series. So, Ezra likes basketball and enjoys soccer. There's nothing about liking and enjoying that seems more important. They're both expressions of emotion. And there's nothing about the, the, the way the two portions of this sentence are structured that suggests one is more important than the other. They're just in series. So signal words in English would be like and or likewise. Progression. Ben let go of the branch and fell to the ground. Here, even these two clauses, or one clause with a compound verb, they, they suggest movement. You let go and then you fall. You couldn't reverse it. He fell to the ground and then let, and then let go of the branch. It wouldn't work that way. He fell to the ground, and then let, yeah, unless the branch broke. Right. He took the branch with him, and then he let go. Okay. So maybe you could make a distinction, I was thinking, like, syntactically speaking, you can reverse it, and it still makes sense, but semantically, that would alter. Right. You, you could, you could, you could um, reverse it, and it still be words on the page that communicate something. But when we try to put the two together, it doesn't make as much sense. So grammatically, you could reverse them. But semantically, you can't. So there's a, a natural dependence at some level. There's a contingency. in the second, the second verb is contingent on the fulfillment of the first verb. And yet, it's not communicated in a subordinate way. They're both at the same level. Ben let go and then fell. And so the falling is a progression beyond the first action. Could you say it like this? It would just be the same thing. Ben fell to the ground after he let go of the branch. That would be communicating something similarly semantically, but the structure would be different. And we're going to talk about that structure in a second. That would be a temporal marker, after. To include that after um, is... Isn't that also arranging order, though? Yep, that there's a, an alteration of order. and But the preposition would be signaling for us the relationship between the two parts. But, uh, yeah, after it's not a conjunction, but it's an adverb, so that would be an adverbial phrase. It's a different kind of structure. It'd be an adverbial phrase after being a preposition. Yes? Just to kind of dumb it down, could this be a simple the if-then statement? Well, the, the if-then is, I'm, I'm going, so... so Right, you, you can communicate in numerous ways. What we want to see is that the biblical author has numerous options to say the same thing, but he chose to do it this way. He chose to leave these two elements at the same level rather than using a subordinate 
conjunction or a preposition. He made that choice. And because of that, even though he could have communicated it various ways, he chose to do it this way, and we have to say, why did he do it this way? And in doing so, he's actually leading us to put, to put comparable weight on each of those verbs rather than seeing one is more dependent on the other. So, alternate. Emily couldn't decide whether A or B was right. You have two options, A or B. Words like or, but, while, on the other hand, and then both and. Joey wanted both pizza and popcorn every Friday night. That's the, that's the, the key, and we can't forget either. So, both and, neither, nor. Now, all of these, what I'm proposing is, are, are at the same level of logical flow. There's not one that's more dependent than the other, although there may be progression, movement toward climax. Still, grammatically, they're being presented at the same level. That's different than when we get to subordinate relationships. Three different kinds of subordinate relationships. Restatement, distinct statement, and contrasting statement. And this is just unpacking how do we talk and how would we capture that in words. So action manner or action means. You'll see the little symbols that are there. Those are the symbols that are going to show up on our arcing diagram. So a manner versus means. I always remember it this way. Grandpa walked with a limp versus grandpa walked with a cane. Limping is the manner by which he walked. Whereas a cane is the means by which he walked. And in Bible arc, they don't distinguish action manner or action means. Usually, in English, we'll express these relationships with the word by plus a participle. By running. He went to the store by jogging. He took a shower by scrubbing something. Comparison, Isaac looks a lot like his dad. He's been growing, literally, in the last two years, it's been a half inch per month. And he is now a half inch taller than his papa. It just happened. And he's excited and I feel small. I feel small. <laughs> Negative positive? What are you <laughs> <laughs> Teresa would just say a lot. A lot. <laughs> so, negative positive. For toppings, choose not the pepperoni, but the green pepper. That's one of the funny... The Nowlands... Pastor John and Mandy, as they've gotten to know us, he just counts that as one of the silly Deroshi things. Is if we go out for pizza, the family gets green pepper. That's what we like. Like a green pepper pizza. And he just thinks that's weird. <laughs> yeah, Lori <laughs> says, that's weird. So we like our green peppers. So not this, but this. Question answer. Do you understand his teaching? Uh, sometimes. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks. Um, idea explanation. Now, these three are a little bit tricky, and often, actually, I have to go to Bible Arc and say, okay, what's the distinction? Because I keep forgetting, even though I've been doing this for 25 years. So that just means the lines get blurry here, and maybe you'd just say, I'm going to group them all together. Idea explanation Janie was delighted with her grade. I mean, she was ecstatic. Where the second statement simply unpacks, explains what was just claimed. And it may not even be clauses. It could be an entire paragraph that unpacks what was just said. And your understanding, the idea was made, and then it was explained. At a phrase level, we call this apposition. Jason, my Sunday school teacher, 
rambled on and on and on. So my Sunday school teacher doesn't have a connecting word in front of it. If it was Jason and my Sunday school teacher, the presence of the and would signal two people. But the fact that you just put a comma in without any conjunction, that's apposition. And you can do that at the paragraph level or at the sentence level as well. Jason is my Sunday school teacher, period. And then you could just pause and unpack any part of that before finishing your story. You could unpack the Sunday school part. For two and a half years, he walked through messianic high points in Isaiah, and now he's walking through his book. Or you could take it another way. That's the Sunday school teacher part being unpacked, explained. You could also unpack the... um, Jason is my Sunday school teacher, and you could say he has six kids in the U.S., one in Ethiopia, one wife whom he loves. He's a prophet, Bethlehem. You could just unpack all that and then keep going on your story about why you even brought up that he was your Sunday school teacher. Idea explanation. General specific is when you deal with a whole and then you narrow in on a part. So, he's experienced much suffering in his life. That's the whole. And you've got, you've got many things in mind, for example, and then you just narrow in on one of those. General, specific. And this is the one that is difficult for me to remember how it's different from idea explanation. Fact, interpretation. It's, it's very similar to idea, explanation. Fact interpretation, Jason was head over heels for Teresa, which is another way of saying he just loves her. And I'm interpreting what, what, what do you mean by that figure of speech, head over heels? When I was in Ethiopia, I got an email from my wife saying Ezra went head over heels while sledding in our backyard. And it didn't mean anything about love. So, this, that figure of speech would be helpful in certain contexts to unpack fact interpretation. All those are support by restatement, where the second part is somehow clarifying, unpacking the first part. Now we have support by distinct statement wherein there is actual support being made and it's here where we usually see subordinate conjunctions. Ground. Ground is the technical language word for giving a reason for something. Peter enjoyed his time in Florida because of the warmth. Because of the warmth, Peter enjoyed his time. That's that's the relationship. It's providing the reason why the other part is true. And when we see that reason statement, it is merely providing the basis to a higher level main point. The main point is Peter enjoyed his time. Then he builds an argument. And many times in the Bible, the argument is filled with remarkable doctrine about God. And yet, it's designed to move the reader to a certain place. Because I am holy, you be holy. What's the author's point? Not to tell us about God. But to command people to be holy. But because God is holy. Take away the reason and you have... No support, no grounding for why I should pursue holiness and say no to sin. But because God is holy, everything changes. Inference. This is the main clause after a ground clause. Be holy is the inference side of because God is holy. Because God is holy, therefore, therefore, you should be holy. 
Tom hadn't eaten in 24 hours, so he was hungry. Therefore, when, when we say, so he was hungry, we want to say, what is the relationship between those two parts? He hadn't eaten, he was hungry. So he was hungry, that is, because he hadn't eaten, therefore, therefore, he was hungry. And in English, as in Hebrew, you can choose to put the conjunction on either the ground side or on the inference side. In Hebrew, it's rarely on both, where it would say, because of this, therefore this. It'll either be, because of this, sing. Or it'll say, this is true, therefore sing. One of the other, one of the options. But it's, it's communicating the same thing. You're just putting the focus... Sure. The, the, the key is that, um, yeah, in inference, the conjunction is on the main clause, whereas in a ground, the conjunction is on the subordinate clause. But the relationship, it's communicating exactly the same, same thing. Bilateral, think the reason is being given, but so you have the main clause, then a reason for that clause, but then another inference is being drawn from the same reason. So the one reason is providing the ground for two distinct statements. See how it works. Herb was pale. Why? Because of his sickness. You could stop right there and say, because he was sick, therefore Herb was pale. The main clause is Herb was pale. The reason for the paleness is because of the sickness. But that sickness statement in this context also provides a basis for, therefore, he took medicine. Why? Because he was sick. And that one clause in the middle provides bilateral, that's Daniel Fuller's language, bilaterally, working both ways, providing the ground for both sides and communicating it to two different reasons. So the reason he was pale because he was sick and the reason he took medicine because he was sick. Yes, so the, there's where simply the placement of an inference marker, therefore, we would have to pause and say, based on the meaning of the words, is this therefore being drawn from the ground, or is it actually being drawn, built, of on, built on top of each other? Exactly. So we've got... Action result versus action purpose. And here you've got to slow down and just ask yourself, okay, is this a natural result of the action that was just given or is this actually clarifying why, what the intention of that action was? How much intention is explicit? So here's result. Ruthie climbed very high so that she got scared. That's the result. Her fright is the result of her climbing. But you could say, use the exact same structure and communicate purpose. Ruthie climbed very high so that she could see. One expresses result, the other expresses purpose. And all of that would be, yeah, she took the roller coaster up. And so there's where we usually, so we communicate not through clauses, but through texts. You can have a text that, a whole text could just be, run! But usually it's not. Usually there's a broader context that's informing. I mean, if you're at the amusement park, all of a sudden, 
these statements, I mean, I had in mind she's climbing a tree and she's getting scared the higher she gets, but you, everything could be reversed based on context and what was result in what, the very words, same words could be result in one context and purpose in another. Exactly. So you just got to be careful readers. Conditional. This relates to your statement earlier. Now we see a subordinate relationship by if and then. Then always bears the weight. But there's a condition. If this, then this will happen. Actually, if then, then may not always bear the weight. It may be context that would determine whether it's the if or the then. If Ruthie climbs high, she will get scared. Here it's, this, the same concepts are set up as a condition, a condition to be met. Words like if then, provided that, except unless. Temporal. Pardon? The then? Yes, so only the if was there, but we're listening and we automatically put the then in there. Because we can recognize the relationship. It's, we don't always need the signals. We would need one of the signals, but not both, in order to have it make sense in English. And in Hebrew, it's the same way. So this relates to um, one of the comments that was made earlier about, well, could we reword it and make it temporal? But in doing so, we're actually changing the structure. It may mean something very, very comparable, but the author chooses which structure he's going to pick. As soon as they left, Brian fell asleep. That as soon as they left is a temporal marker, giving the context when the main clause happens. Josiah ate ice cream at the ball game. That little prepositional phrase, at the ball game, is locative. It could be, Josiah ate ice cream at 9 o'clock. All of a sudden, a very comparable prepositional phrase is no longer locative, it's temporal. And so we're just pausing to ask, what exactly is being communicated here, and how do we understand all the parts? Three more. Anticipation fulfillment. Janie, Janie promised to arrive at five, and she did. As I'm working between the testaments, I am often seeing promise fulfillment working its way out. Like that's the structure of the presentation, just as God said. And so, considering this relationship. Now, contrary statements are of two sorts. Even though, although, whatever, even though she was sick, she went to school to the joy of all other parents. And finally, situation response, the logs caught fire and Isaac smiled. Now, we might think automatically, well, this is just progression, and it is. But in stories, stories are often just a bunch of situations and the response to that situation, a whole chain of them. Situation, response, situation, response, situation, response. A new situation is created by the response, which creates a new situation, and it it keeps going and going. So the logs caught fire. That was the situation that enlivened a smile. It ignited it in that moment. That was the natural response while my son was playing with fire. So let me just pause. Real quick, I want to ask, uh, for people that hold a high view of the Bible, yes. Sure. But could it be possible that there be more than one argument structure for any given passage of the Bible? Or would you, as you, as your view of Scripture, if there, if there is a true argument in any passage, maybe it's hard to find, maybe there's controversy, but there is one objective 
so as I'm working in biblical interpretation, the forms that are chosen, the grammar that's used, is always primary for me in understanding an argument. But I also see a lot of artistry that goes in. So, for example, there may be an entire hierarchy of clauses that are working together and the main points out here and there's all these subordinate elements and explanations and it moves all the way down. But the very last line of this deep, deeply embedded supporting point has repetition of something that was made in the very first clause. Now, some people who aren't interpreting the Bible with grammar would automatically say, oh, I bet there's a chiasm going on here. And they'll go A, B, C, B prime, A prime, and they'll, they'll see that structure. I think that very often the biblical authors are thinking in, in that way. There's an artistry there, but that's not the structure. That's an artistry that's put on top that we're supposed to appreciate and even consider what might that additional element of um, artistic structure have, uh, have to say to us. There's an inclusio, a book ending that he used for this unit, um, but I'm still going to put primacy on the and but or nor for yet so's and the because in order that, so that's, because those, are the, those terms are giving clarity about logic. And that's how communication functions. So, so um, to say there's one right outline um, is tricky. Like where you should draw the lines, sometimes it's, there's good arguments on both sides. And, and so I would never say I've got it all right. But I will wrestle with people and, and push them and to say, I, I can say you got that wrong. Um, you're right, maybe, maybe this could go either way. Um, but we have to account for the words that are given. We have to take seriously how God communicated. Now, I'm just going to jump in because of our time. Let me, that was a good question. Let me give, just work through a few examples to help us. This is the text that we ended with last class. This is Deuteronomy 7. You'll remember the main point, then you shall utterly destroy them. No conjunction, but it's not a completely new idea. Now he unpacks in negative terms what the implications of that are. You shall utterly destroy them. What I mean is, you shall make no covenant with them and show them no mercy. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. Now, what I'm doing in this column is simply identifying what's the little connecting word that's used. Just to jump it out the page so that I see it, I recognize it. And then over here, I'm considering, well, what's the relationship? How is what's going on here relating to what precedes? So, you shall utterly destroy them that then is actually drawing an inference from something that proceeds. It's a temporal signal, but the ground is above it. Or the, the time frame is actually above it. When the Lord gives them into your hand, that's what it says before that, then you shall utterly destroy them. So that the temporal marker is, is just before that clause. Then you've got this explanation of 2A. But then notice these two clauses seem to be explaining this line. They start with no conjunction. That's the symbol of the null set. I'm just using that to say there's no conjunction there. But then you've got nor. So you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For. All of a sudden, we've just seen a ground. Because. This... Subordinate conjunction is, is clarifying a dependent relationship that's giving the reason for something. And it's not just one clause. That clause is connected with a then, connected with an and. So, don't give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons, because... And there's three reasons that actually progress. 
for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, and then something else will happen. But it's part of the reason. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will destroy you quickly. So, you can't see too well here. Then you shall utterly destroy them as an idea. This is the ark. Every proposition is broken down into a little ark. And then I'm wrestling with how do all the arcs relate? Well, I've got an idea here, and then a big arc. Everything following that is the explanation. All of this is unpacking in some way. You shall utterly destroy them. So then you've got these three statements side by side. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. And furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. All of these, I think you could reverse them. I don't think it matters which one comes first. You could have said, you shall not show favor to them, nor shall you make a covenant with them, nor shall you intermarry with them. But he seems to hold off the intermarriage one to the end because that's the one he's going to unpack even further. So, this intermarry, you could have stopped it right there, not had 3B through C, not had any of this, and it would have all made sense. But instead, he unpacks this last unit more, and so all of this is controlled under a single arc. Idea, explanation, the S means each one of these are in series, but now you shall not intermarry with them, and then he unpacks it again. So I've got another idea and an explanation. You shall not give their daughters to your sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons, because... So I don't think there's a progression here. It's just in series. You could reverse them. You shall not take their daughters for your sons, nor shall you give their daughters to their sons. It could have gone either way, so that's a series. And this series is then grounded, G through this reason, and there's a progression, P, happening in this second half. Their turning away your sons from following me will give rise to the anger of the Lord being kindled against you, which will give rise to His destroying you quickly. Now, all of this could have been expressed by action result, action purpose, He could have used subordinate conjunctions, but he didn't. He chose to just use complete clauses, and he put them in progression, side by side. Now, if you take the time to learn how to use Bible Arc, all of a sudden, I look at this, and I'm able to look up at the screen, and just by looking at these symbols, understand the flow of the entire argument, as it's already been interpreted, and recognize that the weight of the argument is on the top piece. Everything else is explanation. Um, Our time is up. I I will do this. I'll just let you see Bible Ark one more time. So, this is Bible Arc, and this is another passage. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, all of this is a unit, and this is a unit. This unit has an if portion and a then portion. So then I'm going to mark it like this. Now then is an inference. So I highlight this and it get, I, I run down here and I say, where's the inference? Right there it is. Nope, that's not the one I wanted. I want this one. How do I get out? Oh, I've got to put the arc over it. There we go. Now these two arcs, what I'm saying is that the second one, second half is actually an inference. Then the relationship of these two big arcs is if, then. So that's marked. This is a ground to the inference 
if then, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, that seems kind of like a series to me rather than a progression. And I just start to work out my arc, wrestling with the relationships. And it's not that I like to draw or that I really like diagrams. It's the slowing down, that just the forcing myself to establish the relationships is, is helping me to read carefully. It's just the tool is helping me become a slower, more careful reader when I'm on a passage I really want to go into depth with. So, once this gets up online, you'll see, you can go to the PowerPoint slides and see a number of other examples um, that I have there, or you can just go read the book, and it's, it's there as well. So, Adrian. Right. When you read a text this carefully, it does allow you to say, they really didn't look at the text at all. You can eliminate a number of uh, bad options. And you can also be able to sit under a preacher and say, he's read his Bible carefully. That's encouraging. I want to be at a place like that. Final comment. Exactly. Yes, there are. If you just go to Bible Arc, there is a host of video resources, um, some of which are done by me, Dr. Nacelli, Dr. Brian Tabb, our academic dean, um, John Piper, and you can just go there and learn how to use the tool. And you don't have to have Greek. You pick up, I want the ESV, or I want the New American Standard. It's, it's all there, and then you can begin to use it in your own daily study. All right, may the Lord bless you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.